Brothers of the plow, the power is with you. The world in expectation waits for action prompt and true. Oppression stalks abroad, monopolies abound. Their giant hands already clutch the tillers of the ground. Awake then, awake, the great world must be fed. And heaven gives the power to the hand that holds the bread. Yes, brothers of the plow, the people must... Hello and welcome to the American Writers, 100 pages at a time podcast and in this episode i will um yeah i'll finish up my thoughts about the gilded age by mark twain and charles dudley warner um now the the end of the story it kind of does end on a on a happy note essentially even though like the overall theme of 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 characters being basically scammers of being this kind of inflated wealth that's still there obviously we still have the situation where like our one character who seems to kind of work actually work does not get what he wants in the end philip he kind of gets a bit screwed in his search for coal um now of course the main plot at the end of the novel involves laura killing colonel selby now this is all off screen all it's actually quite well done where our characters are reading the newspaper and see Laura has been arrested for the murder of Colonel Selby. And this sets up kind of the final confrontation in the book, which is like her defense. And it ends up being insanity to defense. And, and, and so she gets off uh, on grounds of her insanity. And ends up being institutionalized. So that's more or less the, the land, the, the Hawkins land gets used to make this university. Uh, the, the, the kind of the gears of Congress work the way it's supposed to. Um, so that's um, now that's the heart of the novel, of course, is the land speculation thing. So the question really is maybe like how do we fit in this other these other aspects of the story, like the media uh, and this murder trial and all that, and and you know scandal because that that's part of the Gilded Age too, right? It was the era of scandal. Um, you know, if you read your U.S. history textbook, that's one thing you learn about the Reconstruction era is the large number of scandals that plagued the U.S. government at the time, like the Credit Mobilier scandal or the Teapot Dome scandal, all these kinds of scandals that emerged. Well, here it's kind of condensed in this, um, this scandal of, of Laura and the murder of, of Colonel Selby. Uh, maybe not that it's not a financial scan, scam so much, but... Of course, Laura is involved in financial kind of misdoings uh, with lobbying Congress and all that. But I think it's it's more the fact that it's a publicly discussed kind of crime. That's where it, the, the kind of the parallel is. Now, of course, running through the whole novel is this idea. And it it's a very American story, right? In, in, in at least Mark Twain's mind. Because it's about land speculation. Nowhere else in the world... Except maybe in Latin America, but America's in Canada, I suppose, are really special in this that land speculation was hard, was key to the building of the country because you had all this free real estate that the country just inherited, right? John Thomas Jefferson doubled the size of the country. The Mexican War like, kind of expanded it by another third. Um, so you had all this free real estate. And the Indians that lived there were dispossessed. 
obviously. And then the question is, how do you manage this? And of course, for a long time, the federal government basically made its money from tariffs and land sales. Only later did an income tax become necessary. So land policy, land speculation, was the key to how you got wealth, how you got rich quick, right? And eventually, of course, the United States just gave out land for free um, in the Homestead Act to, to settlers and railroads and things like that. So, um, you know, even if the United States was an empire from the beginning, it's also sort of socialist from the beginning because of the free real estate, because of the land. That's, that's an argument maybe we can get, get into a little bit later, but... I think there's something to it. So, um, what to say here? Um, yeah, let, let's focus on the second half. So, this the whole second half of the book. It's it's about the the struggle to get this Hawkins land sold to the United States. The scheme eventually became providing. This is all managed by sellers, of course, but the scheme became to establish a college of science and technology that would lead to the purchase of this land for, I think it's $3 million when it finally, the bill kind of finally comes before um, Congress. Now, it fails. Now, the reason it sort of fails, I think it has something to do with Laura and her arrest of the, for the murder of Colonel Selby, her former husband, bigamous husband at least, um, who she gets revenge on that way. So they do sort of overlap because Laura's, because Laura's pushing for this, that's why the, the ultimate passage of the bill fails, right? Uh, I think for a while they're like, they almost pass it and it doesn't get agreed upon to be sold for 3 million, but it all sort of uh, blows up, um, I think in part because of public scandal about it. Um, you know, the public bribes, everything comes out with the murder trial, right? It's like the, it's like the Epstein thing, right? Like Epstein arrest kind of exposed all sorts of other corruption and connections and nastiness in in government and in um, and, and in the relationship between government and capital, Panama Papers, whatever it is, you know, any kind of scandal that exposes the corruption at the heart of of the the economy, kind of can put a wrench into the the system. Now, I, I spoke. Not fondly, I suppose, but at least somewhat accepting of a certain deg like degree of corruption. Like pre-modern states always had some kind of corruption because that's how you could run a government on the cheap, right? You pay an official, you can't pay him that much, right? Because governments aren't collecting that much money, right? Or I mean, basically feudalism is this way, right? Feudalism is I give you land and you extort from those people whatever the fuck you want, right? Um, and in exchange, I don't have to pay for you to come to my support in, in a war, right? Now, in China, the state is kind of similarly kind of thin. And so, yeah, government officials were appointed and they got a salary, but that was not really enough to sustain their lifestyle, right? You wouldn't send your kids to school, go through all the tests, go through all that pressure for a position that only paid the government salary. So instead, what you had to do is basically manage the local economy and get you got your you got your piece of it through through the system, right? Um, this kind of baseline graft is always going to be there, but in a democratic system, it became kind of a votes for economic benefits kind of deal, like the patronage system. And I did sort of uh, support that. I, I still do. I still think that that's not uh, such a horrendous thing, right? Like the idea of we're going to have a completely pure and trustworthy and, and honest government is kind of ridiculous to me. Um, 
But anyways, that's obviously their critique. They're critiquing government corruption. Uh, and I think we all do to a certain degree. But I, but I think where how much of it is integral to, to the working of the system in a utilitarian sense? How much of it do you just need? Uh, and how much of it is redistributive? I think I think um, if corruption is redistributive up, that's bad. But sometimes it can redistribute things downward. Like I think the patronage system is that kind of downward redistribution. That's not what's going on in this novel, really. Although, um, although I think there's something to like. What was the goal here? The goal was to build a university that would have primarily benefited black people. So even if there's a bunch of corruption involved in the passage of the law. It wouldn't have been the worst thing if it had passed, right? It's almost like the country's worse off because the Hawkins land deal and the university stuff didn't get passed, right? Maybe it's a little, the government's a little more pure in that it wasn't a, you know, it didn't pass a law due to corrupt lobbying, but the people who went to that university aren't better off. All right, let's talk a little bit about uh, Laura. Um, Now, the Selby thing, Selby's like a, a small part of the novel, but he's big on the character of Laura and super, super significant in the, the climax of the novel. Um, this short-term relationship is very, very important for Laura. She basically considers herself married uh, and abandoned, even though he was being bigamist. Uh, I don't know if that marriage was legal or not, but she considered it le legal. It's kind of like Don Giovanni and Donna, Donna Vero, right, where she considered the married and Don Giovanni just was kind of bouncing around girls. Um, now, the authors connect the relationship to a malevolent shift in her character. Quote, this is earlier in the novel, but Laura was ill for a long time. Be she recovered, she had that resolution in her that could conquer death almost. And with her health, can back her beauty and an added fascination of something that might be mistaken for sadness. Is there a beauty in that knowledge of evil? A beauty that shines out in the face of a person whose inward life is transformed by some terrible experience. Is the pathos in the eyes of Beatrix Sendi from her guilt or from her innocence? Laura was not much changed. The lovely woman had a devil in her heart. That was all. End quote. So somehow it is a shift in her character. She just sort of go evil after this being abandoned. But the suggestion here is it's always been there, but it's like unlocked almost by the betrayal. Um, now, marriage, of course, here is presented in a very dysfunctional way throughout the book. Um, you know, I don't, I haven't thought much about his opinion of marriage. You know, like in the in Tom Sawyer, Mark Twain, you don't really have fathers. You have Pap; he's not really a father. Tom Sawyer doesn't have fathers. It's all raised by women, right? Basically, Huck Finn ends up being essentially raised by women. Um, what else? Joan of Arc, no real parents to speak of there. Prince of the Pauper dead father henry the eighth um i don't know I, I i think there's a broader story to be told here to think about i i haven't thought about it enough but um here marriage is really central to it um right if we look at laura and selby there's a basic conflict in the relationship each is trying to attempt to possess the others kind of in their own terms um and this is sort of how we look at relationships, right? And maybe this is my own hang-up about relationships and marriages of being somewhat possessive in, in the, at the end. I think to a certain degree that's what happens. 
Women want men to themselves. Men seek out to possess as many women as casually as possible. That's kind of what we have here, right? Like, yeah, Selby is in the wrong here, basically trying to collect as many women as he can. But Laura is also like fundamentally possessive about her relationships, right? When Laura finds Selby in Washington with his real wife, she seeks him out as his own and claims him as her own. But when that fails, she kills him. So she's essentially being possessive. And it's interesting to me that the, the defense is insanity, right? When she's just doing what like, is the wifely thing to do is to possess one's husband, right? To have ownership over a husband. That is what you're taught in sentimental novels of this type, or that, that this is parody in any ways, that that is what should be done. Um, the murder and the trial that follows leads to much of the tension in the second part, the final part of the novel anyways. Um, and so if possession is at the heart of our relationships, then violence is the inevitable result, right? How is private property defended? Well, if not through violence, right? Um, and that's why I'm thinking of like Don Elvira and from Don Giovanni, right? Um, where it's really this outrage at, at being like not of, of the woman of not being able to possess the husband, Right. Uh, usually you're sympathetic to Donna, El, Donna, Donna Elvira in Don Giovanni, and probably for good reasons. She was sort of abandoned and seduced and abandoned, lied to and all that. But she also comes at relations with the city like, you are mine now. Like that puss that I gave you means you are mine. Right. Um, and that's not helpful. That's my point. Right. I guess ultimately, I think we all should be more slutty um, in our relationships and we'd all be kind of happier and freer. Less bound up in possession. Um, these are kind of my hang ups, I suppose, coming out here. But uh, she writes at or he, they write at one point about um, Laura and you dare come here with her here to tell me of it here. You mock me with it and you think I will have it, George. You think that I'll let you live with that woman? You think I'm as powerless as that day I fell dead at your feet? And later the narrator asks, had she not a right to him? So in this response to the dilemma, both turn towards plotting and scheming, right? And eventually Laura, I guess, wins out because she does actually, she murders Selby. But it's all very ugly and unfortunate, right? And... I think the non-monogamists really are more more mature in this way. Now, what else is going on at the end of the novel? I think uh, Twain and Warner spent a lot of time um, really building up and cultivating the aura of Washington in the post-Civil War era. I think it's all very good stuff. Um, where we have different class divisions, we have the different political families, the social life, the new rich, the old rich, the stuff I talked about last time the corrupt, the targets of the corruption. Quote, renowned generals and admirals who had seen but colossal miss when he was in the far west, talking about Washington here, went out, in and out before him or sat at the center's table, solidified into palpable fresh and blood. Famous statesmen crossed his path daily, that once rare and awe-inspiring being, a congressman who became a common spectacle. Now, there were all these heroes after the Civil War, too, right? And Washington must have been full of them. You know, Washington, Grant, and, and not Washington, I mean Grant and Sherman and Sheridan and all the other heroes of the Civil War. Um, 
So anyways, I think there's a lot of interesting stuff in this novel. I think this novel should be read more, to be honest. Uh, that's kind of my case here. But we see several hints throughout the Golden Age to make like another point here um, of, of the growth of America's empire. Um, now, of course, many of the Western land schemes are rooted in empire. There's an imperial agenda in um, securing this land. Right. Because like the Louisiana Purchase or the Treaty of Paris or even the, the deal with Mexico after the Mexican War, none of these were were taught. They're like, well, we bought the land. The United States bought this land. It's not really really what was purchased was the right to have non-interference in the abuse and seizure of that land. Right. Because it's owned by indigenous people. Right. And so that the actual imperial act had to come later. But what was by buying like the Louisiana Purchase from France, Jefferson bought the right for other countries not to interfere in in that. Basically, they 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 purchased the right to change the color on the map from a European point of view. It still took an access act of dislocation of the indigenous people. So there's that. But I also point out that at one point Colonel Sellers suggests overseas expansion in the context of the plan, which actually um, was something. Grant was trying to do uh, to annex Santo Domingo. Um, if you don't know, um, you can read books about this. Grant had the chance, and it got failed in Congress, but the chance to essentially buy Santo Domingo. Maybe not Haiti, but the Spanish side of it. Um, why didn't that happen? Well, my understanding from a book called um, Race Over Empire which argues that basically the one thing kind of stopping further American expansion abroad was anxiety over race. Because if you're to annex like the Philippines, which of course the United States did, it's going to mean Filipino people could move, would be part, would be part of the empire. And if you're a Jim Crow era racist, you don't want more non-white people in the country. You're trying to segregate and contain the colored people within your own borders. You don't want a bunch of new ones. So at, in the context of post-Civil War America, bringing a bunch of people considered non-white into the U.S. empire would have been unthinkable, right? At a time, they're still trying to integrate these four million former slaves. Um, but so that ultimately failed. But um, Sellers sold this uh, plan or connected this plan as a way to get Southern support for this other policy that he's promoting, other corruptions he's trying to get at. Even the plan to build this industrial college on the Hawkins land is seen as part of this modernization of the South, bringing into the nation after the Civil War, um, you know, making the South kind of colonizing the South in, in its own way. And that's, of course, somehow some people see Reconstruction. Maybe not fairly, but, you know, maybe that's to agree what Mark Twain and Warner are, are kind of doing here. Um, the former slaves are presented as semi-colonial subjects that are to be brought under the tutelage of Washington. So the novel ends um, with Laura being acquitted, taking stock of her life and attempting to turn away from being the evil, jilted woman that has been kind of corrupted by working in Washington. Um, if there's a lesson here, it's that the nation could also maybe turn from that path. But it had to come, ter come to terms with itself, kind of through a trial. Like, there'd have to be a similar trial where the United States FBD has already declared insane, which is essentially what happens to Laura. Laura is deemed insane, and so, and that allows her to 
liberate herself from the corruption of the country. Um, in the same way, if the country wants to be free, it's going to have to like declare itself insane, which I which I think is the, the criticism that that they're making here. Her quest for wealth from nothing, parallel to the quest of many others, but it's ultimately showed to be vapid. At the end of the novel, we're told, "quote Her life has been a failure." That was plain. She said, "No more of that." She would now look to the look at the future in the face. She would mark her course upon the chart of life and follow it without swerving through rocks and shoals, through storm and cold, or through storm and calm, to a haven of rest and peace or shipwreck. End quote. So that it might end up in disaster, but at least it'll be more authentic. Um, now, in a way, it's maybe a banal ending for Laura, not without the kind of the sentimental, overdrawn things that he would have had in many popular novels at the time. Um, but you're given this ambiguity, which I think is kind of liberating uh, for the reader and for our character, Laura. Um, without this possibility of a shipwreck at the end, I don't think Laura would be completely happy, right? Um, so that's my overall thoughts, I guess, on, on The Gilded Age. I think it's a pretty stunning novel, the more I think about it. And I think it's worth uh, checking out if you haven't. Um, uh, you know, there's not much more to say about the chapters themselves at the end of the book because a lot of it is. Oh, one more. I guess I guess the media stuff I didn't talk much about, but the media aspects of it are are sort of important too. In that, much of Laura's trial is fought through the media, and I, and I think that's why, you know, it, it's the period where the media is kind of expanding and becoming a bigger arbiter of political affairs in America. And of course, it always has been to a certain degree, but. After the war, it, you know, even more so with the rise of kind of popular culture and mass culture. And, and I think the fact that Laura's trial is a scandal in the public sphere is kind of significant, too. So I think that's it for um, for now. I think that's going to be it um, on the Gilded Age. So next two episodes, we'll look at the American Claimant, which is kind of a sequel to the Gilded Age. It's only written by Mark Twain, though. Uh, Charles Dudley Warner didn't help, but Sellers comes back with a new name because of legal issues that Twain had to deal with, but um, you know, we're you know, it's another novel kind of 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 political corruption and, 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 and money-making schemes and, and, and tricksterism and all that kind of stuff. So, that's what we'll do next. I'm looking forward to it. Um, so I guess that's it for now. Let me know what you think of the Gilded Age after having kind of studied it, you know, for the last kind of hour and a half or so, however long these episodes take to listen to. Um, give me your own thoughts about it and uh, share them with me, and I will see you next time. Thanks for listening. The plow, come rally once again. Come gather from the prairie wide, the hillside and the plain. Not as in days of yore, with trump of battle's sound. But come and make the world respect the tillers of the ground. Awake then, awake.